0: I'm Rob Mendez, and this is Episode 15, Crumbling Kingdom. This episode of History of Portugal is brought to you by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support and where you will be able to ask any questions you like and have them answered on the show. And thank you so much to Brian and Suzanne for signing up already and helping to ensure the longevity of the show. And if financial support is not in the cards for you right now, you can help me grow this podcast by recommending it to friends, family, or coworkers. And please give us a rating and a review on your platform of choice. I do love reading those and it helps to know that people are really interested in the show. I appreciate it. Last episode, we discussed the plentiful and severe problems faced by the Emirate of Córdoba in the 9th century. And we ended the episode with the unexpected death of the newly minted Emir, Almundir. This episode, we will stick with the Emirate and explore what happened next. And what happened next wasn't great. As an additional note, I failed to mention in previous episodes the meaning of the word Benu, as in Benukasi. The word Benu is Arabic for children of, so it's really just a dynastic designation its english counterpart would be house of like house of wessex that kind of thing so that's what's meant by benu and now let's get started having only ruled for about 2 years the sudden death of almundid no doubt came as a shock to the whole of the emirate of course We have two different versions of what happened. The official historiographical tradition maintains that Al-Mundid died of natural causes. But once again, our gossipy medieval historian Ibn al-Qayuta accuses Abdullah of killing his brother. But based on how he acted as emir and how he handled power, it really doesn't seem like he wanted the job to begin with. He is described as being extremely religious to the point of almost neglecting everything else. He apparently was a glum, depressive, and deeply paranoid person. It honestly sounds like mental illness was at play here, but that's just my own speculation. Five years... After the death of al-Mundid, the largely unchallenged rebel Ibn Hafsun decided to begin attacking territory near Cordoba and to threaten Cordoba itself, and Abdullah didn't really seem interested in doing anything about it. After much cajoling and pressure from high officials and family members, the emir finally agreed to lead an army against the rebels. It seems like the campaign was successful in as much as the rebels were driven off. But aside from that, there was no follow-up to take advantage of this victory. Therefore, it was basically meaningless. And the experience of life on campaign must have been a miserable one for the emir. Because this was to be the first and last time he would ever lead an army. Abdullah's proclivity towards solitude seems to have only deepened the older he got. He is reported to only ever leaving his palace to go to the mosque, which he did by the way, by going through a covered walkway which he had built, so that people on the outside couldn't see him. The only other time he left the palace was to go hunting, which apparently he was very into. As time went on, he became increasingly reclusive, and anyone who dared to intrude on his privacy was excessively punished for it. For example, in 910, a number of members of the Umayyad family were taken into custody by the prefect of the city for daring to use the bridge on a day when the emir was wanting to cross it to go hunting. But Abdullah's psychopathic cruelty didn't stop there. not by a long shot. Apparently, he actively encouraged his second son, Al-Mutadif, to kill his eldest son, Muhammad, which he eventually did by stabbing his older brother to death in 891. And in 895, the emir's paranoia in turn pointed itself to Al-Mutadif by accusing him Of being involved with a rebellion that was taking place at that moment in Seville. Al Mutarif had to barricade himself for three days in his own house, while essentially being under siege, but to no avail. He was murdered by order of his father. And just to put the cherry on this family murder cake, the Emir also had his two brothers, Hisham. And Al Hasim killed. While this kind of family slaying was not uncommon in the kingdom of the Astudias, it was unprecedented in the history of Umayyad al Andalus. And it begs the question why? Well, the evidence seems to point to severe internal struggles within the Umayyad family due to the emir's lack of leadership and his erratic, murderous behavior. Honestly, Abdullah came to power at the worst possible moment. Not only was he a cruel, paranoid recluse, but he lacked all the qualities needed to navigate the emirate in this most critical and dangerous time. You see, Ibn Hafsun's revolt in Malaga acted as a spotlight revealing to all ambitious and independent-minded leaders that Cordoban military power was effectively neutered and ineffective. This had the predictable effect of an almost universal rejection of Umayyad authority throughout Al-Andalus, as local warlords and magnates began taking over towns and cities. Many of these rebels made alliances with each other, and these alliances were not bound by ethnic or religious considerations. They cut across these boundaries for the sake of political expedience. And it seems like the prime motivator for secession from the emirate was, of course, taxes. If you'll recall, Abd II put in place a more systematic and thorough taxation system which, naturally, those same warlords and magnates hated. So, they just stopped sending the taxes to the capital. Now, mind you, it's not that they ceased to collect taxes from the people. They just kept it for themselves. And they used those revenues to secure their newly acquired power by building strongholds from which to exercise control over those areas. Which in most cases amounted to just a few villages, and they often passed this power on from father to son. But those were just the minor players of this game. The major players were the independent states that were set up in Murcia and Seville. The state in Murcia was purportedly ruled by a man named Daisam bin Ishaq who is described by the medieval Arab historian Ibn Hayyan as, quote, loved by all classes of people, a friend of his subjects, open-handed and showering favors on poets and literary men, Unquote. He is said to have had an army of 500 men and ruled his principality until his death in 906. In sharp contrast, to the beloved bin Isaac, we have the character of Ibrahim bin al Hajjaj, the ruler of Seville, whose reputation leaves much to be desired. Seville was the largest city in Al Andalus after Cordoba, and it was a port town connected to the Guadalquivir River, which made it an important node for communication with Morocco. It was ruled by a well-established urban aristocracy. At the beginning of Abdallah's reign, the two leading Arab families were the Benu Khaldun and the Benu al-Hajjaj, who not only boasted descending from a distinguished Arab line, but also claimed descent from the Visigothic kings through the female line of the family there were also two important Mualad families, the Beno Angelino and the Benu Savadico. These families seemed to have tolerated each other right until the breakdown of the Umayyad government. Only one year after Abdullah came to power, Qurayb bin Khaldun decided to take advantage of the unrest and lack of central control. He left town and established himself on his estate, while making alliances with other rebels, including our old friend, Ibn Marwan, defeating the Umayyad governor and attacking the suburbs of the city. At this point, a leading Mualad, Muhammad bin Khaleb, approached the emir on the question of all this unrest. The emir decided to appoint Khaleb to maintain security on the road between Seville and Cordoba. Now, I'm not exactly sure if anti-Mu'alid sentiment played a part in what happened next. But the appointment of Halib seems to have been used by Ibn Khaldun as a tool to enlist the support of the other main Arab family, the Benu al-Hajjaj. And that's when the feuds began popping off for real, as the Arab lords seized Qaeda and Carmona. Desperate to find a quick solution to this uprising, the Emir sent his son Muhammad to try and make peace. Unfortunately, the expedient solution was to sacrifice Ibn Khaleb, and so he was executed. But rather than calming things down, this only gave rise to further civil strife in Seville. But. By 891, Ibn Khaldun's plan was complete. The Arabs had seized control of Seville. The top Mualads had been slaughtered, and the Umayyad governor had fallen in battle. And since the emir was pinned down by Ibn Hafsun, Cordoba was powerless to do anything about it. But the thing about alliances based on the enemy of my enemy as my friend is that once that enemy is defeated, well, you know the rest. So, predictably, by 899, the Banu Khaldun and the Banu al Hajjaj were at each other's throats once again. So, Ibrahim bin al Hajjaj came upon the age old trick of calling for a feast with his rivals, and subsequently massacring the lot of them in one fell swoop, and thus becoming the undisputed ruler of Seville. From this undeniable position of strength, he began negotiations with Cordoba. Basically, giving Abdallah no choice but to recognize him as the king of Seville and Carmona. In exchange for some revenues, military support on the Holy War raids, and a pinky promise not to help the emir's enemies. Ibrahim was able to establish a small but cultured court in the city, as well as a standing army of five hundred soldiers. To his credit, one of the men who flourished under Ibrahim's patronage was Ibn Abd Habihi, an author renowned for writing the great cultural encyclopedia known as the Akit al Farid, which introduced the people of Al Andalus to the rich literary life of Eastern Islamic civilization. Ibrahim lived the rest of his days in peace and prosperity, dying just one year before the Emir in 910. Among the many enemies of Cordoba, our old friend Ibn Hafsun remained the most dangerous. He was the only rebel leader that was powerful enough and audacious enough to attempt a direct assault on the capital, and he was accepted as the leader of the Mualad faction. The high point of his career came in 891, when he established his base at Aguilar de la Frontera, from which he sent raiding expeditions around the countryside of Córdoba, and where his forces reached the walls of the city itself. At this stage, he also tried to enlist support from outside the Iberian Peninsula, offering his allegiance to the Abbasid Caliphate, but this request came to nothing. That same year, he did suffer a defeat at the hands of the Emir, but it appears like it only temporarily reduced his power, and he soon recovered the towns he had lost, but the defeat seems to have damaged his prestige, and his power ceased to grow from this point on. In a bizarre and honestly perplexing move, in 899, Ibn Hafsun announced that he had converted to Christianity. Frustratingly, we're not given the reasons for this conversion, and historians have puzzled at this move because overall, there doesn't seem to have been any strategic or tactical benefit to make it. In fact, it made his position much more difficult. While undoubtedly some Mozarabs joined his cause, many Mualads, who were after all sincere Muslims, abandoned him. And remember that he was their faction leader and they made up his core support. His conversion meant that the kind of compromise we saw elsewhere with the emir was no longer possible. Because, if you'll recall, in Muslim law, the penalty for apostasy is death. So his conversion made it inconceivable for him to be recognized as a legitimate governor. It also added another layer of complexity to the situation, as now... Campaigns against him began to look a lot like holy war, which in turn made it increasingly difficult for him to find Muslim allies. During the last decade of Abdallah's reign, Ibn Hafsun was under regular attack by expeditions sent from Cordoba. But despite this effort, by the time of the emir's death, Ibn Hafsun was still in control of Bobastro. By all accounts, it doesn't seem like Ibn Hafsun had any grand plans of overthrowing Arab rule or of conquering Cordoba. He comes through in the sources as an opportunist that tried to make alliances with other enemies of the emir, ranging from Ibn al-Hajjaj of Seville to Alfonso III, and the latter might explain his conversion to Christianity as a way to entice Alfonso into an alliance. He also comes through as unreliable and dishonest, as he sometimes accepted offers of peace and position under Cordoban rule, but in the end always broke those treaties. But for all his faults, there is a reason why Ibn Hafsun survived and that is because he represented for the interests of a powerful constituency of those who were unhappy with the apathetic rule of Abdallah. The fact that the Umayyad regime survived at all during this time period is pretty remarkable, and it was no thanks to the emir, but rather thanks to a small group of dedicated Umayyad mualads and some members of the Umayyad family. The chief character among them was Ahmad bin Abdi Abda, whose family had a long connection with the Umayyad family. He and his sons were tireless leaders of military expeditions to drive back rebels and to collect taxes. He raised a small group of 300 soldiers, but they must have been well-trained and well-equipped since they were said to have been the equal of any army in Al-Andalus. Just about every year, usually under the official leadership of one of the emir's sons, someone from the Abdi Abda family would set out to wage war in the name of the crumbling emirate. The medieval historian Ibn Hayyan goes into considerable detail on an expedition that was launched in the year 896 but for the sake of brevity, I will condense his recounting into more general terms and themes. The small force, led by the Emir's uncle Hisham and by Ahmad bin Abdi Abda, left Cordoba on the 17th of May when the harvest would be beginning. At first, they headed to land controlled by local Muslim warlords that defied the authority of the Emir the army followed the pattern of destroying crops and cutting down trees, forcing the local lords to battle. Where the emir's forces would usually win the engagement, extract the taxes owed, and send hostages to Cordoba to ensure future good behavior. They would also swing by territory of loyal nobility to collect taxes and make sure that the locals knew that they were a force to be reckoned with. During this particular summer, there were continuous torrential rains that left the army drenched and demoralized. But still, they pushed forward, attacking stronghold after stronghold, forcing lords to capitulate to their demands, taking hostages, collecting taxes, and taking whatever food and equipment they came across as needed, since they had no supply line. By the 26th of August, they set off on their return journey. It was a nightmare. Having been drenched almost non-stop on the way, they now suffered from terrible heat and thirst, with some 30 men and even more animals dying. As they passed by the city of Lorca, they had no intention of fighting the rebel lord that ruled that place. But the lord seeing the sorry state of the army pursued them and there was some skirmishing and it's reported that the cordoban forces gained horses and seven coats of mail from the fighting they then returned to cordoba reaching the capital three months and 21 days after setting out this account Brings into focus an undeniable fact about the government in Abdullah's reign, and that is that the systematic taxation and administration of the kingdom had almost completely broken down. While it's true the taxes were collected, at least in Murcia, this only happened because the army showed up and demanded it. It's also evident that in addition to the money, the expedition was concerned to siphon or steal supplies of food, horses, and military equipment. Presumably to see it through the winter in Cordoba, as well as for the expedition in progress. And that should tell you just how bad the state of the military was. They didn't even have a budget to get supplies for the winter months. The forces of Cordoba could obtain hostages from lesser warlords. But when faced with more powerful warlords, they couldn’t even extract a token oath of loyalty to the Emir. Historian Hugh Kennedy sums up the situation quite nicely, quote: "Basically, this was government by pillage, and the Umayyad army was no more than a marauding band living off the country. Its main objective was not to uphold the authority of the state, but simply. To feed itself. So, given this background, it's not surprising that Abdallah's government made very little impact on the frontier areas of the kingdom. Not much is known about Toledo and Badajoz during the reign, but it's clear that Toledo maintained its independence and that Badajoz continued to be ruled by the family of Ibn Marwan. We also see a new power rising, that of the Benu del de Nun. Notably, they took over Valencia and Shativa. Over the next two centuries, agricultural advancements were to make Valencia one of the richest, most fertile parts of Al Andalus. But it seems that at this time it was sparsely populated by Berbers, who relied upon transhuman pastoralism rather. Then settled agriculture. The Benudil Nun also decided to take a crack at conquering Toledo. In 887, Musa Bindil Nun allegedly led an army of twenty thousand men, which, if it's even remotely true, was much larger than any of the Umayyad armies of the period. He led his forces against Toledo and defeated the army of the city plundering a vast amount of loot. But it doesn't seem like they went through the trouble of occupying the city. Reeling from this defeat, the Toledans seem to have looked to the Benukasi of the Ebro Valley for protection. And as mentioned in previous episodes, members of the family do appear as governors. But in the long run, the Benudil Nun would eventually take over the city in the 11th century. In the upper march, there was a major change in the balance of power. When al-Mundid was the emir, he had appointed as governor of Zaragoza a member of the Umayyad family. But for reasons which are not clear, Abdallah decided to replace him with an Arab family called the Tujibis. This family had already been entrusted with Kalatayud and Daraka by the Emir Muhammad. Muhammad bin Abdallahman al Tujibi was a close friend of Abdallah, and in 890, Abdallah secretly gave him Zaragoza and may have even helped in the current governor's murder. Which seems kind of convoluted to me, but with Abdallah, you just never know. Be that as it may, the end result was clear. Zaragoza was now in the hands of the Tujibi dynasty, and neither the Benukasi nor the Umayyads were able to take it from them. And this would remain the case for the next 150 years. By contrast, the power of the Benu Kasi went into rapid decline in the early 10th century, partly because of the ascendancy of the Tujibis, but apparently even more so because of internal fighting. The weakness of Abdallah's government had the catastrophic result of allowing the separatist tendencies of Al-Andalus to run rampant. Most of the local nobility who took over were men with deep roots in their own areas, and their place for independence were hardly unforeseeable or unusual. We've seen throughout this show that any weakness in the central government was immediately exploited by ambitious warlords and nobles. Dynamic emirs like Abdallahman II had been able to temporarily overwhelm this type of insurgency with raw military power in the form of castles and garrisons, but also with clever diplomacy by giving these same lords official titles and power. Now, without the stick or the carrot to keep them in line, these local lords took formal power from the faltering government into their own hands. And it would fall to the next emir to try and navigate this mess of a kingdom. And not only to survive it, but to reassemble it to its former glory. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.